0: Hello and welcome to Contemplations and today we're going to be talking about right-wing wokeism and this is part two so we're going to be picking up where we left off um, sorry that we had to cut it short I just normally record in the afternoon and so I didn't want to keep the production staff behind whilst we finished talking about because we only got about halfway through but we've got a decent amount of things to cover today and we don't have a time limit so we're definitely going to finish today in all the things we wanted to cover and we are going to be uh, going over some perhaps more controversial stuff, but um, with all of that out of the way, I am, of course, joined by Stelios once again. Hello. And um, I suppose we may as well just get started.
1: Yes. I must say also that I really like recording in the morning because I'm fresh and in the afternoon I'm usually tired and in the symposium that is gonna come out today, it's symposium 38, I think, on uh, Zamyatin Sui, that we did with Connor. I was incredibly tired during the during the shooting. <laughs> and yeah, I'm, I'm happy that we're doing it in the morning right now.
0: I'm normally the other way around. I'm like a reptile. I've got to warm up slowly throughout the day to be functional by about the afternoon. Yeah. So um, yeah, I, I might be uh, a bit groggier than normal, but it should be fine. So I wanted to start off by addressing uh, a potential point. Um, I suppose it might as well be worth reiterating first though, What our notion of right-wing wokeism is, just so everyone's on board. We're not talking about the ideological aspects of wokeism, but just the behaviours that the people who hold those ideological positions exhibit, because it's not just that ideology that is uh, frustrating and annoying, it's the behaviours as well, I think. And so when it's mirrored on the right, I think that this is adopting the, the, the progressive left's framing, or the woke left, whatever you want to call them. But uh, it's, it's a problem for us for multiple different reasons. One, it sort of poisons the well of discourse. Two, it puts people off from engaging with us because if you see someone screeching about how they're right and everyone else is wrong and how you know their way of seeing the world is the only way to see the world, then people are gonna be like, well, this person's clearly not stable. I don't wanna to listen to them. And so it's it's a a sort of pragmatic cautionary tale, I suppose. Obviously, we're not saying the way we conduct ourselves is perfectly right. Just trying to identify problems in the world that could easily be solved just by a bit of introspection and a bit of um, virtuous conduct, I suppose, is the way I would put it. But the thing I wanted to start on would be defining your values based on the views of your political opponents. And this is something that's bugged me for a very long time. Um, I did an article uh, I think it was in September of 2021 which um, was titled as the world gets better political discourse gets worse and uh, the world certainly hasn't got better I'll I'll say that part hasn't aged very well but political discourse certainly has got worse and I'm going to read a little bit rather self-indulgently from my own article that kind of summarizes how I feel so it says unfortunately it is becoming increasingly common to see people justify unfair smears, name-calling and all-around unpleasant behaviour towards far leftists by saying something like, well they do it to us, they deserve it back. It goes without saying that you do not adopt the moral values of your political opponents especially when it comes to questionable conduct. The fact the far left behaves in such a manner is a great advantage to the right that should be capitalised on not copied. The right can present itself as a side of reason by treating people fairly rather than by imitating the far left who cannibalize their own for their lack of ideological purity and um, the far left is already infamous for this today which is part of the reason why the moderate left can prefer dealing with the right as opposed to the far left and we've actually seen this with lots of sort of more moderate um, left-wingers. I know um, I wouldn't necessarily call him moderate, but the uh, the guy Destiny said that right wingers are <laughs> a lot politer to him than than left wingers who are closer to him ideologically. Yeah. And um, although I don't think uh, people like that necessarily deserve um, polite treatment all the time, because you know they posit some horrendous things. But you're you're going to convince someone, you're going to make people believe you aren't as bad if you are just respectful. It's, it's, it's sort of more fundamental than politics in a sense that people get a read of your general vibe. And it, is, it basically boils down to, is this person um, going to initiate violence unto me? And I think that that's ultimately what it boils down to. If someone's verbally aggressive or verbally more confrontational, people feel more on edge because there's a greater possibility of there being violence and therefore their body pumping them full of adrenaline. There are all these chemical signals that are saying, okay, you're uncomfortable, um, there could be conflict. And even if you're sort of well-versed and you're confident in your ability to fight, you're still less likely um, to agree with the person, even if they're saying a reasonable point because they're doing it in a confrontational manner. It's the sort of thing where once a certain threshold is crossed, you kind of guarantee conflict and there's a sort of deeply-seated emotional drive that even if someone is saying every everything you agree with, but they're doing it in a way you don't like, yes. and that's sort of condescending, finger-wagging, aggressive maybe, it's a matter of um, a sort of honor principle, and there's a sort of emotional disgust present with treating them reasonably. And you want to avoid this because you want to make it as easy as possible for the person you're talking to, to agree with you.
1: I don't find it at all surprising that people who you can characterise as moderately left-wing say that uh, it's easier to talk to right-wingers because the left has over-intellectualised things for years and has tried to find intellectual solutions to essentially practical problems And I think that some people on the right are doing it as well today. So, for instance, for me, the issue with the borders and deportations, for instance, when they are necessary, it's a practical problem. Close the border, protect the border, and do what is necessary to do what you promised you are going to do. This is a practical problem. Every time governments fail to do that, it doesn't mean that a new intellectual position is required. So, in this respect, I think that a lot of people on the right are mirroring the left. And I think that this is a bit weird, because it leads into a situation where people within the right will resemble the left. In what way? In the way that they are so ready to play to the friend-enemy distinction, and and so quick to interpret anyone who disagrees As an enemy. We will go there. I know I'm not going to anticipate, but I I want to say this in advance, that there's a scene from Monty Python's Life of Brian, where they're talking about they are making a side out of communists and their infinite denominations. Watch it if you haven't already. It's just brilliant.
0: I'll be surprised if people haven't watched it, to be honest.
1: Yes, but let's say some um, Zoomers may may not have watched it and stuff like that. But to go back to what you said, identifying your values in the language of your opponent. We did a symposium together with Bo and you and yourself. Symposium 28 on the linguistic subversion of wokeness. And I think that this was a really important discussion and it is very prevalent. It's very, sorry. No, it's very relevant to what we are discussing uh, in these two videos. So, speech is always speech in a context. It is speech with language in a society that has, you could say, particular codes of ethics that resemble each other and have frequent overlaps. The terms that pick up the, what, what that society in which speech occurs, and they denote the values of that society, they assume a kind of symbolic nature. It's like right, wrong, these are thin, thin concepts, and then you have thick concepts like, um, you could say, uh, cruel, or um, it's not exactly thick concepts, but you have concepts like symbols, like the, the notion of liberty. And I remember, I saw a comment uh, on the promo we did on YouTube on I was advertising symposium, and someone said underneath, "I'm second-tied of Europeans." who think we're stupid. This was someone from the U.S. We... we of course we know what liberty means. We just call our, our, ourselves anti-liberals because we need to... We need to... know what we're talking about, and the left is calling themselves liberals. So, two things about this, I think... Three things about it. First of all, I think that this does show the attitude you're talking about. Second, I never said that I'm addressing people I think uh, are stupid. And I don't think that this person is stupid. Uh, in fact, I think that these people are smart. The person who wrote this comment, I do think he is smart or she is smart. And I'm trying to appeal to him or her to think something extra. So this is exactly the audience I'm target targeting. I'm not targeting people I, I look down on. I think that this is precisely the issue, that speech occurs within a context and we have a very large undecided section of the population in the middle that every time someone from the right says, well, the left is using this or that label, so I need to take the opposite label, I need to put an anti in front of me, I need to put an anti-liberty or I need to put an anti-community, or an anti-freedom, or whatever, they forget that this is a trap, this is bait. Why? Because the majority of the population, or you could say swing voters or something, swing voters are not always the majority, but they're a crucial um, crucial part of the, uh, of the population. They look at that and they suddenly link right-wing with the... Destru- the destruction of the social order instead of the instead of the left Which the left is really open in in various instances about disrupting okay,
0: the social see, yeah. order,
1: but they in the when people use the language of their opponents and they start identifying in the language that the, the their opponents are trying to make them use They're neglecting that there is an audience out there, and the audience out there has this, you could say, subliminal understanding, even if it's not entirely conscious, it has this understanding of of terms that are symbols. So if if right now, post World War II, the term liberty has become a symbol, the person who identifies as anti-liberal is the person who gets Marginal who, who falls f- to the trap that the left is trying to set, and basically gets marginalized by the population, that links this person with the destruction of society and the social order, and g- allows the people who are very actively claiming in their books and speeches to want to subvert Western civilization and Western society they allow them to appear as that society's protectors.
0: That's a very good point, yeah. Yeah. and I think that people forget that when there is an exchange between right and left, that it's not like, say, you know, a conventional um, form of warfare, maybe. There are spectators there. There are potential people who are sat on the sidelines that may well join the fight. And the sort of way you win and win decisively a lot of the time, is to either rout your enemy or you win over and make them sort of turncoat against them. Yes. And people don't necessarily think in those terms, they think of things that are more emotionally satisfying, just like, yes, all all that matters is I find the most radical exemplars of my opposing side and exact as much political punishment on them as possible. Yeah. And that, may be satisfying it may make the world a better place even but in the long term it might not be the best strategy to bring about the world you want to bring about in that there may be slightly more important things than that which is immediately emotionally satisfying yes even though you know at the same time there is something uh, appealing about it isn't there
1: i know but i think that the what is appealing and what is satisfying is not the best counsel for action. Of course. And uh, I I don't know, I mean, I I don't have an anonymous account on Twitter or something. It's easy for people who are anonymous to just say things. But I think that every person who engages in public discussion has a responsibility to speak what they think is true. And uh, actually, to try and use speech in order to cultivate the behaviors that they want to see, both in themselves and to other people, because ultimately, if we are talking about the moral corruption of the West or the moral decline of the West, or you know all these negative terms, what we have in mind ultimately is people practicing um, particular vices, people adopting bad behaviors. So the question is, how do we try, what do we do, when we have, let's say, the limited opportunities to reach out to people? What kind of message do we want to communicate? I want to communicate the positive message.
0: Well, yeah, because it, that, that holds two specific sort of um, points of worth, I suppose you could say. On the one hand, it moralises rather than demoralises people on your own side to have a positive notion of what the world could be like. And two, it's far more appealing to to say to people, this is what um, you can get if you adopt my way of seeing the world, I suppose. That's what you're trying to sell, right? Um, When talking about politics more generally, not Stelios specifically. Um, And I think that if you were to say, okay, well, here's all that's wrong with the world, from my perspective, is not necessarily a reason for people to say, okay, well, I think your politics are good. Because a lot of the time a a political coalition isn't necessarily identifying the problems because once you hear someone identify a problem, you don't necessarily have to subscribe to their worldview. Exactly. Whereas a positive prescription about how you want to see the world go And actually say, okay, I think this this is and this are important and this is how we're going to improve it Then that is something that is more um, More well-founded to build a political coalition, I suppose
1: I think that this is one of the most important things you have said uh, because There is a very 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 basic fallacy that people make Especially on Twitter I would say that outside Twitter as well. They conflate criticism with the proposal of a solution. There are many people who have you could say insightful criticisms of social ills, but they have nothing good to offer as solutions. And so there's a problem here because and that is why I have been constantly saying that when we are judging about practical affairs, and we, we should always remember that politics is a comparative issue. So, practical affairs are not necessarily susceptible to mathematical answers. What do I mean by that? You could say that 2 plus 2 equals 4. Saying that five, 2 plus 2 equals 5 is as wrong as saying that 2 plus 2 equals 6. But, this doesn't occur always in practical contexts. In practical contexts, we deal with non-ideal things. When we're talking about political systems, for instance, we deal with non-ideal situations. People who try to think ideally, they're utopians. So it's just, sorry, they, they live in a completely different world. Or they claim they do. But the issue is that they forget this, that it, it's easy to make a, a criticism of a, of a particular system. Why? Because systems are imperfect. It's incredibly easy actually to produce a, a, a criticism of a system. Why, how? You show that the imperfect is not perfect. Every system has problems. Every well, system has literally problems.
0: Literally everything known to man, yeah. of, of the creation of man, Yes. Is is imperfect, yeah. Because we're in, imperfect beings, and this is something that I've uh, quite often have to say to Carl is that, well, that of course there are going to be problems. No one political system is going to solve mankind's problems because the problem lies within man himself a lot of the time. Yeah, and that there are aspects of human nature that are just ill-suited to the ends that we want to achieve, and that. You know, the world we um, are adapted to inhabit doesn't exist anymore. And so there's going to be a certain amount of dissonance between the modern world and modernity and human beings themselves, um, regardless of uh, which system you have. And it's also worth mentioning as well that things like technological improvements have very tangible material benefits but also they have a sort of effect of m- moving us further away from our own nature and so it's not entirely clear um, whether these things are, are necessarily doing us any good in the long run. I would I'd argue that they probably are, that it is better to have the technology and be able to choose to Um, Either, you know, not adopt it in your own life, although sometimes that's not always possible, of course. Um, Or choose to adopt it and adapt around it.
1: I think that there is, this is also a really insightful thing because it's, I've heard people who, it's easy for people right now, especially when they criticize modernity and they want to associate themselves with that kind of criticism of the, world we're living it's very easy to generate clicks or to adopt a kind of behavior or rhetoric according to which everything modern is basically uh, wrong and responsible for everything that is wrong with the world and has ever been wrong like you know things like mm-hmm. the extinction of the dinosaurs yeah it's modernity that that uh, caused it <laughs> yeah. wow. it's technology that caused the extinction of the dinosaurs yeah
0: Movement of time, yeah. But no, the the point I always try and make with this sort of thing is that um, quite often the the argument will be that um, technology is making people um, incentivizing immorality. But if if your environment can shape whether you're moral or not, then you're not moral. Being moral is being moral um, despite your circumstances. Otherwise, you're not moral.
1: I think that. There is a an interesting element of truth in the criticism that because How we become habituated In our environment does contribute to the kind of person we become of course So it seems to me that the world we live in does contribute to the people we are but it is a a significant mistake to point at something and say this factor over here. Within this imperfect context, we have an imperfect factor. And this imperfect factor is actually uh, blamed for everything bad. Okay? That's a mistake as well. Because you could also say that the lack of that factor could bring you threats. So, for instance, fire. Fire can burn us. But without fire we would be burned. And this is why, honestly, I get pissed off every time I hear about the, the myth of Prometheus and used in a pejorative sense. Oh, this is Promethean. Uh, sorry, no. Of course, I'll try to use fire in order to to, to make my, the world better and try to navigate myself in it. What else is there? <laughs> Yeah, honestly, no, no, uh, this is just complete nonsense for me, just saying everything, okay, it's Promethean. Yeah, okay, without fire, you would freeze to death. So, learn how to use it. Technology is the same thing. Okay, it can be used for good, it can be used for bad. This is, this applies to everything. Uh, You could say a kitchen knife. It can be good. It helps you in all sorts of ways. It can be used for bad. It, it's very easy, and I would say incredibly myopic, to pick something and, and try and, and present it as being the main source of trouble everywhere. Because oh. it, 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 that, that's the issue. If you present, it, it's, it sort of resembles far-left thinking, let's find one thing and blame everything on it. Let's blame everything on technology. This is
0: one thing that really frustrates me, particularly my sort of research methodology brain, is that when you're learning to be a practicing research psychologist, like, one of the very fundamental first things they tell you is obviously human beings are very complicated things. If you think a phenomenon is caused by one factor, you're probably wrong. And that, you know, things are normally multifactorial. And very complicated and the um, interchange between factors quite often can be mediated by other factors and you, you get a, a sort of picture of the necessary complexity and resolution you need to see the world in to be able to understand it in the first place like simple psychological phenomenon that aren't even the conscious phenomenon therefore a bit more fundamental because they're closer to human nature still have very complicated webs of factors that contribute towards them. And so trying to understand a society and how it's motivated, well, that's you know hundreds, thousands, even millions of, of human beings, all with their own individual multifactorial system running, uh, if you're looking at them individual per individual basis. And then the sum total of all of that how on earth are you going to look at all of that, all of that data, all of that information, and say, you know what? I plucked out this one thing. This is this is what explains it. Yeah. When, whenever you hear someone saying this is caused by this and this alone, that person is stupid. That is 100% true all of the time. That's um, that's a joke, by the way, um, because I'm expressing uh, massive certainty about. Uh, the importance of uncertainty. So, yeah, don't take that seriously. Um, but the, there is still a, a point there to the, be there, had. There
1: is room for jokes, and this is something that uh, gets uh, lost mm-hmm. in certain areas. Yes, and it's certainly. important to have them, yeah.
0: Mm-hmm. But the, my point being is that whenever something is reduced down to one factor, that um, I know Peterson has talked about this before, um, then the person's deliberately reduce that conversation to be so low resolution that it allows them to provide a convincing rhetorical device and I think that that's ultimately what it is, is that that person wants to convince the people they're speaking to that they know what they're talking about.
1: I think it is ironically an element of uh, utopian thinking. It's... Think of many people who grow old and they give the kind of advice to you know their offsprings and uh, their offspring you know their children or grandchildren ask them you know you know father mother grandparent whatever uh, what should i do in life and sometimes some of them are bitter and they think that if only i had that one thing everything in my life would be perfect so for instance you have uh, someone Old And sometimes resentful and says, well, I didn't pursue my dream. So if I did it everything else would be perfect And I think that this is This kind of mentality is Completely false because we miss that the things that we said no to Sometime if we had we said yes to them a lot of other stuff in our lives would be different Okay For some people that means that they could have they should have made better choices But I'm talking about the kind of person who just focuses on one issue and Misses the forest for the trees and this happens very frequently in context of values There is a bias to think that there is only one and only one fundamental value The one that is currently under threat and this this kind of thing this kind of bias, unless we're aware of it, it leads us into extreme types of low-resolution thinking. So, for instance, right now, it's community that is at stake. So, suddenly, a lot of people are forgetting all other values, like liberty. Forget it. No, it's it's de- demonology. It's demonic. Okay? Sorry, I'll, I'll have none of that. None of that. Yeah, uh, I think
0: that um, because of the abstract nature of values and yeah. how for many people their manifestation of virtue in their values yeah. is in behavior rather than you know consciously thought out and formalized yeah. Yeah. then they find it difficult to identify uh, which virtues and principles they actually value until they're threatened yes. until their absence it's like um, you don't know what you value until it's taken away. It's that sort of phrase, isn't it? And so I think it's a sort of defensive mindset. I don't think it's necessarily um, that helpful, although certainly some pushback on, on certain values is still important. There is a purpose f- to it. I think that also seeing the, the bigger picture and seeing which virtues you, you hold dear yeah things like I don't know. truth might be under threat and therefore it's very formalized in people's minds that it's valued, but some of the other ones um, might not be, like um, I think very few people are thinking, oh, it's a virtue to be materially satiated. To watch the full video, please become a premium member at Lotusheaters.com.